0: So what role did Robert Mueller even play with regards to the special counsel? We learned he didn't interview witnesses. I don't think there was any chance at all he wrote the report. What was his function? Just getting coffee for the angry Democrats? So much information came out of Robert Mueller's testimony this week, and none of it thanks to Robert Mueller. We are going to break all this down in just a minute. You are listening to Climate and Chaos with Jay Bashayo. I'll be right back. All right, all right, all right. Okay, I want to get into this Robert Mueller testimony. It was by far the biggest thing that happened last week. But before I do, I want to remind you, if you're not following me, please do. Follow me at ProudOIFVet on both Twitter and Parlor. Okay, so let's get to it. What did we get out of this testimony? Well, we got a lot of things out of this testimony. I'm going to say that it was 100% obvious The Democrats wanted Robert Mueller to testify for one reason only. They wanted him to sell to the American people that impeachment is the right course of action when it comes to President Trump. Now, as a fact, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out here right at the beginning. Regardless of what anyone says, Mueller was coached, he was informed of what he could and could not say, and he had every intention of being evasive with the the Republicans as often as possible. He had no problem answering questions from Democrats, it seemed. But when he got to Republicans, his entire body language changed. Whenever he had the chance to be evasive, he was. He stalled heavily. There was a big difference between which side of the aisle's questions he was answering and how he acted. Now, all the Democrats did, every member was almost identical in a sense that they just wanted to read a section of the Mueller report and ask Mr. Mueller if it was correct. Other than that, they tried to lay down more detail as far as the volume two goes of the Mueller report. That's pretty much all they concentrated on was volume two. They just want to lay down a case for obstruction. They have abandoned collusion for the most part. When the Republicans had their chances to speak, they really did a good job. They systematically were tearing down the report to show it for what it was. And what it was was it was prosecutorial overreach, by far. It was not congruent with any of the special counsel office rules, or even the DOJ principles. And it completely disregarded President Trump's civil rights. It overlooked them completely. Now, a lot of things looked like he did not have control over the special counsel. It seemed like the angry Democrats, as President Trump refers to him as, were running the program and doing whatever it is they wanted to do. And Mueller could very well have just been a plant. Now, not to spin tinfoil conspiracies, but that's how I took it. A lot of everything looked pre-planned. Like I said, he looked like he had been coached. And he got away with a lot. There were times when he constantly was using the, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to go into that. That's outside my purview. And I'll show you some examples of where he really used that conveniently, and he just got away with it. So the biggest thing that I took out of this was his exchange with John Radcliffe, the Republican from Texas. And it very much seemed like he said something that was like kryptonite to our republic and our constitution and our way of life. Now, it just so happens that I have the clip. And I'm going to play that clip for you and then afterwards we'll talk about it, but I want you to pay particular attention to what he says when he answers. It takes a while for him to get there, but he gives an answer to John Radcliffe's question after he rephrases it a couple of times. Pay particular attention to his answer he gives. It's extremely important. This DOJ policy or principle set forth a legal standard that an investigated person is not exonerated if their innocence from criminal conduct is not conclusively determined um, where does that language come from director where is the doj policy that says that can you let me make it easier can is I, can is i there, is sorry, go ahead it, can you give me an example other than donald trump where the justice department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because I, I, their innocence was not conclusively determined i, I, I cannot but this is unique okay situation. Well, I, Okay, did you catch it? He said, I cannot, but this is a unique situation. Unique situation? First off, what does he mean it's unique? There's nothing about this that's unique. Russia attempted to thwart our election, and he was asked to investigate it. He was also asked to determine if anybody coordinated from the Trump campaign with Russia. Then, he was asked to determine if President Trump obstructed his investigation in any way amounting to a criminal act. That's it. Now, President Trump, if I'm correct on this, is an American citizen, and he's afforded the same rights as anybody else. What Mueller is saying here is that this situation varies from somebody else, that he would be treated differently if he was another person, and that, my friends, is where democracy goes to die. He is admitting that President Trump is being held to a different standard. He's saying that we have a 2 tier justice system. I mean, I guess we're really not that surprised by this, considering if you've read Volume 2, you realize that it entirely supports this. Now, John Radcliffe went on to discuss a line right from Volume 2, page 2, and it said, Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that President Trump committed a crime, it does not exonerate him. The last five words of that sentence, should they have absolutely no business being there. The sentence should have ended at the word crime. Folks, prosecutors do not exonerate. As another congressman said, there is no office of exoneration at the DOJ. You're not going to find it anywhere. It's not at the DOJ. It's not at the FBI building. It's not at the CIA building. It's not at the Homeland Building. There is no office of exoneration. Now, Radcliffe went on to say, that Mueller broke any and all prosecutorial guidelines by offering 182 pages, the entire second volume, of extra prosecutorial analysis of events that were not charged as crimes. In other words, he wrote a road map to impeachment for Congress to follow. He didn't cite any offenses as impeachable, though. You know why? Because none of it rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, as determined by our Constitution. Volume two was not authorized by law. In volume one, he concluded that no American conspired with the Russian government to thwart our election. That was a decision. He made a decision. In volume two, he listed the worst looking information of the president's actions that he could find for Congress and the American people to see and form a negative opinion on, of course. Then he says, well, this doesn't really amount to a crime, but Here's a list of bad stuff anyway, and we're not going to decide on it either way. Funny enough, in Mueller's press conference, let me take you to a line from Mueller's press conference that he gave on the 27th of May. He said, And beyond department policy, we were guided by principles of fairness. Uh, It would be unfair to potentially accuse someone of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge. So that was department policy. Those were the principles under which we operated, and from them we concluded that we would not reach a determination one way or another of whether the President committed a crime. Now that's his explanation for Volume 2. Why did he reach a conclusion then in Volume 1? He reached a conclusion in Volume 1. He said that no American knowingly or unknowingly coordinated with the Russian government to thwart the election. That's a decision then he didn't make a decision on chapter, on volume two. He falls back on the OLC opinion a lot in this case, in the, in the, in the testimony. He uh, got into it with Ted Lieu at one point, and he later corrected himself on it. He had actually told Ted Lieu that Ted Lieu was correct in saying that he would have indicted the president had it not been for the OLC opinion. Uh, now, I'm talking about the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion that a sitting, sitting president cannot be indicted. Uh, he fell back on that a lot. But with regard to the exchange with Ted Lieu, he later went on and corrected himself in his opening remarks of the second committee meeting, hearing, uh, where he said that, uh, he did, that the OLC opinion was not the reason why he did not indict. Now, when he originally said that it was the reason... He gave everybody the feeling that there was information out there to indict the president on, that he actually had a reason to indict, but he just didn't because he's the president. Turned out, that was not the case. I want to conclude talking about John Radcliffe's five minutes with Mueller uh, with the last thing he said to him. He said, I agree with the chairman that Donald Trump is not above the law, but he's damn sure not beneath the law either, which is where volume two of this report puts him. Now, never true words have been spoken. He is not beneath the law either. That is where the second volume of this report attempts to put him. It attempts to put him under the law. He is not good enough to receive the same benefits that any American citizen would, which is the burden is on the prosecution to have to prove guilt. He does not have to prove his innocence. It is up to the prosecution to prove that a a crime took place and that Donald Trump was the perpetrator of that crime. All that is thrown out the window in Volume 2. That's a pretty good indication of why I don't believe Mr. Fairness Mueller was running this investigation. I think it was more like Mr. Andrew Weissman, Hillary campaign donor and Democrat supporter his entire existence, was more in charge of what went on. Mueller was a plant. He was a front man. He stood in front of the special counsel and looked good. Oh, we got this guy who's very fair, and he's very esteemed over his career, and we're going to get a very fair special counsel investigation of the president. That's not anywhere near what happened, and it is obvious from this report that that's not what happened. And if the report didn't sell you on that, then the testimony should have. Mueller knew far too little about his own report. He was corrected on it several times, and I'm going to go into that next. I want to go through uh, a few different lawmakers and the questions that they asked him. Now, I would love to go through some counterpoint and do some Democrats too, but I would be here talking for two hours about the same thing every time I brought up one of their names. All they did was go to volume two, take out a section ask Mueller to confirm that it was correct, and then move on. It was really painful to watch. It was like the Democrats had a plan and they were just going to stick to it and they were not going to veer from it. It was very highly scripted. So now I want to take a look at some of the individual Republicans and the questions they asked and the points they were trying to make. Uh, The first one that I want to look at is Jim Sensenbrenner of uh, Wisconsin. Actually, it was kind of interesting. You had to wonder if Mueller was not paying attention or if he had no comprehension of what was going on. Like, for example, Jim Sensenbrenner read a a statute verbatim to Mueller. Mueller agreed that that was the statute. So then he paraphrased it. He said it a different way. Now, we're only talking about this happening within the matter of five seconds. Mueller said he'd have to look at the statute. Like I said, he's either not paying attention or is just not comprehending. He did a lot of stalling. Uh, He had three questions that he had to have repeated to him. He was delaying. And he asked him, why didn't you say impeachable conduct? Now, that's something I was referring to earlier, that none of this amounts to impeachable conduct. He referred all this non-cross-examined 302s, 180 pages of possible offenses, and then he just kicks it to Congress. He absolutely knew what was going to happen from there. He knew he was writing a roadmap to impeachment. When Steve Chabot had his turn, he came up with some pretty good information. This is when you started to see that certain things Mueller was saying was outside of his purview that made absolutely no sense. Fusion GPS, he's not familiar with it. He flat out said he was not familiar with Fusion GPS. How can you do a a two-and-a-half-year investigation and not know about one of the key contributing factors that created this whole entire situation? He said Glenn Simpson was outside of his purview. Three times overall outside purview when it came to Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, or Christopher Steele. He wouldn't talk to him about the Steele dossier, there was a Russian lawyer that was working with Fusion GPS since two thousand and fourteen. He never mentioned that in the report. He ignored anything that ever came down to Christopher Steele and Fusion GPS. One of the kind of bigger moments was when Louis Gilmert got his turn, and he made quite a statement at the end of his questioning. Louis Gilmert is one of my heroes in Congress. I really like that guy he went off about the fact that the president of the United States did not obstruct justice and he pursued justice. And Mueller basically was perpetuating the injustice that was carrying on the investigation with the Trump haters. And he knew that President Trump did not conspire. So basically he was saying that he knew long before he ended this investigation that President Trump had not conspired, but Of course, he carried on with the investigation to probably throw the midterms, which a lot of people have speculated on, that he knew prior to the midterm elections that President Trump had not conspired, and instead of coming out and telling everybody that, he allowed the midterms to happen pretty much under false pretenses. His response to Louis Gohmert's statement was, I take your question. We heard a lot of that, and maybe that's an older term that I'm not aware of, but I have never heard that. I don't understand where that comes from. I take your question. Strange. I guess he's saying that I'm acknowledging that you're asking me a question, but since I'm painted into a corner and anything I say my handlers are not going to like, I'm not going to answer you. That makes more sense. Uh, but I digress. Anyway, getting back at it. Now, Martha Roby from Alabama was exceptionally good she established the fact that A.G. Barr had said in his confirmation hearing that he would release as much of the Mueller report as possible. What she had established was that Mueller was anticipating the fact that A.G. Barr would release whatever report he put out. So he put out this very harsh-looking information with the anticipation that the American public and Congress were all going to get to see it. She made a very good point there. It's also, if you notice in my opening remarks, I said that uh, Mueller did not attend any to all of these interviews. Well, he said to her that he attended very few, were his words. So right there, we know that his, again, his, we're, we're establishing a pattern that his control and his participation in this investigation was minimal. She asked him who wrote the March 27th letter to Attorney General Barr, and he would not say who wrote it. She also speculated on the fact that there were two years without a leak, and why was the letter leaked? And he couldn't get into that. So he made it sound like he knows how it got leaked, but he couldn't get into it. That that was very telling. And then she she, she asked him straight out, was A.G. Barr's letter of principal findings inaccurate? His answer? I'm not going to get into that. Now, folks, I ask you, what was he there for? What could he get into? He definitely could sit there and agree with the Democrats all day long. But any time a Republican had a question, it was diversion. It was stall tactics. It was whatever it was that kept him from answering the question straightforward. And see, that's what the American people want to know. They want to know how flawed... This second report is. If it's accurate, then they want to run with it and make up their mind whether or not they have faith in our commander-in-chief or if he should be impeached. But they don't want a version of inaccuracy either. They want to know the truth. The American people deserve the truth. We paid for this investigation. We paid $25 million for it. We should have something to show for it, right? Then it was time for Jim Jordan, and Jim Jordan never fails. He always brings it. No matter what the situation is, he always brings his point of view across in a very strong manner. And he had a good one. He came with the Joseph Massoud character. Now, everybody wants to know who this Joseph Massoud guy is. Massoud is the person that supposedly lived in Italy or in Great Britain, and he's the one who made contact with George Papadopoulos. The point he was making was that Massoud lied to the FBI three times. He was not charged. However, those same comforts were not afforded to Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, General Flynn, or Roger Stone, all of which were indicted in one way or another with something that had to do with lying to either Congress or to the FBI. Mueller brought a lot of process crimes, but it seems like he only did it if it were Russians or if it were people tied to the president. Not Joseph Massoud, though. He is the one involved in kicking this whole thing off. As the story goes, George Papadopoulos is the one who put out the fact that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton. The question Jim Jordan brought was, who gave that information to Papadopoulos? And, of course, Mueller could not answer. He wouldn't go into it. Which gave us our first clear inclination to believe that Mueller did not write this report. Jim Jordan's response was, it's in the report. It had already been put in the report, who gave that information to Papadopoulos. The answer was Joseph Massoud. So, are we starting to notice a pattern here? He can't answer questions... He can't tell us what what information is already in the report because he doesn't have a clue. I'm telling you, he did not write this report. And when I say he didn't write it, I don't mean that he didn't personally sit down and type all this out. I don't believe that somebody in Mueller's position would do that anyway. I'm sure somebody would do that for him. What I'm saying is he did not acquire the knowledge through this investigation to have this report If you're a seasoned prosecutor who's done this many times over in the 25-plus year career that Mueller had, don't you think a basic fact pattern would start to develop as you uncover facts? He should have some kind of recollection as to what's in the report and what isn't, especially a major fact about the guy who basically kicked this entire probe off, Joseph Massoud, that fed information to Papadopoulos. That supposedly, and I say supposedly because it's in question whether or not it ever happened, that he supposedly gave an Australian diplomat. The whole thing is just completely bizarre to me. From there, different congressmen narrowed down certain things that again looked either conflicted, inaccurate, to say the least. Uh, There was some challenges as to whether or not he interviewed for FBI director. Now. Of course we've heard the president say that he did he interviewed for it and he told the vice president that he that this was the one job he would come back for was FBI director now this was the day before he was named as special counsel he claims that he never that he doesn't recall ever telling the vice president that it is the one job he would come back for he also claims that he didn't actually interview for the FBI job. He said he was brought in by President Trump to consult, to basically give his opinion of who would make a good FBI director. That's in question, and I don't believe President Trump would flat out say that he interviewed somebody that he didn't. Uh, a lot of pressure was put on him about uh, Peter Strzok. Peter Strzok had said that he was removed for the appearance of impropriety then, then in the testimony. Uh, Muller contradicted him. He said he fired him over the text messages, which we all assumed and pretty much knew. But Peter Strzok had a different version of that. He claimed uh, early uh, to mid-July of 2017 was when he learned about the affair between Lisa Page and uh, Peter Strzok, and at the same time was when he learned about the text messages. And he claims he took... Quick and decisive action on it. Well, Andy Biggs, for one, challenged him on what quick and decisive was. It appeared as though he got away with a lot. Now, I know I'd already said that earlier, but I didn't understand how he can just be like, well, I'm not going to speak on that, when it's something that he absolutely should be able to speak on and there's no repercussion. In a court of law, a judge might order him to answer those questions. But when he's sitting in front of Congress with the Democrat chairman of the committee, no one is going to force him to answer any questions that he doesn't want to answer. That's why I think this whole thing was a sham from the beginning. If he didn't want to answer the question, he didn't answer it. If he wanted to answer the question, if he wanted to paint the president as the obstructor-in-chief, then he answered the question. He made very little cover over the fact that he was strictly on the side of the Democrats, and he was there to help them prove obstruction. How did we go in the first place? How did we go from my report is my testimony to I'll testify in front of Congress? He'd already stated he didn't want to. Why did he change his mind on that and decide that he was going to testify? But of course, there was no influence from anybody on that. He wasn't prepped by anybody. I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't believe that. I think he was prepped. I think he had an agenda when he went in there, just like he had an agenda when he stood in front of the special counsel's office and gave cover to 13 angry Democrats. It's exactly what I think happened. However, one thing was for sure, this was definitely not going the Democrats' way. He bumbled a lot he was put into the corner a lot by the Republicans and he could not fight his way out he just referred to what made him look very bad to the American people his I can't comment on that I can't talk about that did not look good he may have gotten away with it but it did not look good so that's why I say the Democrats absolutely failed at trying to pull off what they set out to pull off they seriously thought that the book was going to be not as good as the movie. They thought the movie would be ten times better of having Robert Mueller up there discussing all this. It absolutely backfired on them. It didn't create any more people that want to see impeachment. I just don't think it happened. Now, I want to give you guys my final summation on all of this, and I want to take it to this week's chaos reduction. Okay. When I started researching for this week's podcast, I knew I really wanted to make this one special. When I look at the overall view of Washington politics, I am struck by the fact that it appears our republic may be diminishing on a daily basis, so when I was deciding on a topic this week, the Robert Mueller testimony was the obvious choice because of the facts uncovered by key republicans. It not only is a direct example of the degradation of justice in our great land, but it's an astounding defeat for the democrats that didn't amount to much of any substantial gain for the Republicans. The result of the hearing, I feel, is that everything remains the same. If you love the president already, well, you still love him and maybe even love him more. And if you hated the president before the hearing, well, you still do. Of course, without any justifiable reason. But the one thing that stood out from the hearing that one maybe Freudian slip on Mueller's part is what should have every patriotic American that cares about the future of our country shook to the very core. When I heard Robert Miller respond to the question raised by John Ratcliffe, my heart nearly dropped out of my chest and my jaw to the floor. The exact thing that we had assumed was going on and that our Constitution is designed to protect against is now confirmed, and it's a direct strike against our criminal justice system. Mueller made it very clear that there are different standards to one presumption of innocence, particularly in the case of the president. You heard the clip I played where he said that this is a unique situation when investigating the president. The presumption of innocence is never something that could be taken away from any American, period. It is the backbone of our legal system, and apparently it's for sale in the president's case. This right that we're afforded puts the burden of proof on the prosecution to prove you committed a crime. And if they can't do that, you're innocent. No one exonerates you. Because if they did, that would mean just the opposite. There was a presumption of guilt, but the prosecutor managed to prove your innocence. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. And if this is the direction we're heading in, that just because the people in key positions are angry that their candidate didn't win an election, we don't need to worry about nuclear war, folks. Our republic has already fallen. Let's be real for a moment. This is my fourth podcast ever, and I know I don't have a ton of people that take the time out to hear what I have to say. But just as much as I'm thankful for those that do, it is equally important that those people hear what I'm saying for what it is. This is a warning. The special counsel investigation has proven without a doubt that there are treasonous individuals in our government, and although President Trump is vowed to drain the swamp, This is a job too big for one man, especially when they're accusing him of treason and have the power to put a stain on his presidency for all time to come. He needs help, and the only way we can give it to him is in the form of more congressional Republicans. So our job starts at the ballot box. If the president's individual liberties can be disregarded by a collection of Democrats with a grudge, shady prosecutors, and adulterous scumbags, what will that leave you and me? If the most public and most powerful man in the world can be judged without due process, then it's just a matter of time before they come for us. Folks, this is how it starts. They rob us of our rights, and they make us dependent on them for safety and protection. And then, we're no longer a republic. We're a socialist like Bernie or AOC's wet dream. There is a lot of anti-American activity going on in our country. Antifa's violence, Ilan Omar's abhorrent remarks, the constant racism from the left, just to name a few. So plant your flag in the ground and don't let anyone touch it. Let everyone around you know that you are proud to be an American and you will not stand for the open destruction of our liberties. This is the best country in the world and it's also the most free, but it didn't come without a fight. And although I don't advocate for violence, I am saying that that fight never ended. It is more important today than ever before. Be proud, be patriotic, and stand against the people that would do us harm. So again, very important to me. Make sure you're following me at ProudOIFVet on both Twitter and Parlor. Sometimes I post a lot of updates about upcoming shows and stuff like that, so you don't want to miss any of that information. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to listen to me. Please tell your friends. Until next time, you have been listening to the one, the only Climate and Chaos with Jay Bashir. Be good to each other.